please be seated. The reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and can be found on page 1182 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. The page numbers for those are on the screen now. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Harry, thank you very much. Uh, Last week we started this series in um, Colossians, and I was saying that Colossae was a small town, uh, not very fashionable place, uh, and it was probably quite a small church that was there, and and they were probably feeling quite ordinary, uh, like they've been told this news, this world-changing news of the gospel has come to them, but they looked around and they just thought, well, it's just little old us, isn't it? Is there more? Is there more? And Paul writes to them, uh, because he's aware that that kind of feeling, is there more, can be spiritually dangerous. Because what it can do is it can lead you to look in all sorts of other directions, down the wrong directions, and and come under the teaching of of people who are not helpful, not not good for you spiritually. And so Paul wants to say two things to them last week, we saw. He, He wanted to assure them, you are already qualified. Have confidence. The gospel you have received is the true gospel. You are already qualified. Give joyful thanks for that. And he says, yes, there is more, but it's more of the same. The way you find more is by going further on into Jesus, by going further with Christ. It's not wrong to want more, to want to be filled with more of the knowledge of God and and more of his work and his fruit in your life. But the way you get it is by going further with Jesus. It is what he says. And so Paul's point to them is, put simply, don't move. Don't move into some new direction under some new teaching. Don't move away from the gospel that's you've heard. And actually, he's still on the same theme here. In fact, for most of the letter, he he wants them to continue in 
where they're going, not, not to move away to something else. And you see it in verse 23 at the end of this passage, don't you? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, don't move. It's in Jesus, the one you've already received. That's where you'll find more fullness. Don't look anywhere else. Don't move. And I wonder how they felt when they opened the letter and they read that. I wonder how we feel. Because... I guess lots of us have that sense in us that we'd like more from our spiritual life from time to time. Maybe quite a lot of the time we we feel like, is there more? How do you feel? Uh, When Paul says, no, you've received it already in Jesus, just keep going. I, I guess some people might be disappointed by that. They were hoping that there was some new fad or or fashion or trend or quick fix, spiritually speaking, some new teaching, some new five-step program that could sort it all out for them. And so this feels a bit like, really? And I guess for us today, in our day and age, it's particularly difficult to hear this message of endure, carry on. You have it all in Jesus, and and if you keep going with him, you will find deeper fullness. But that's where it's found. It's not in something new, because, because we live, don't we, in the age of novelty. There's always something new around every corner. The latest fashion, the latest trend, the latest thing that's catching everybody's attention. And can I hold my hands up right away and say, guilty. Guilty. If you talked to me last term, I would have been telling you about something revolutionary that was going to change our home life. And it was this. It's a book. Oh, God, I got a good laugh. Uh, it's a book called The Roasting Tin. It's a, a really easy set of recipes where you just put stuff in the one tin and you can just let it go for half an hour, an hour, whatever it is, fine, meal's cooked. And I was like, this is great. And of course, we got the book given to us by somebody. And what did we do? We cooked, you know, 12 meals in 14 days from this book. Guess how many times we've used it in the last month or two? Like once. Isn't that the way? The Christmas presents that at the minute we're all so excited about. We know by mid-February it'll be quite old hats. We live in the age of novelty. And if you live in an age of novelty then actually it's quite hard to hear that message of, no, keep going, stay fixed and firm on the thing you already have. Don't go looking for the new thing. You have it already. And so how is Paul going to grab the Colossians' attention and get them to stay firm? Maybe it wasn't novelty for them, although first century Roman Empire was a bit like that as well. People loved debating ideas and all sorts of new teachings would come in all the time. It wasn't so very different from our own age in some ways. Uh, But maybe for them it was that sense of feeling ordinary and so desperately looking for the next new thing that would make them feel more than ordinary. But what's Paul going to do to get them to stay, to get them to not move, to be firm in the gospel? Well, we have here this passage, such a famous passage. And why is this a great passage to get us to stay firm and not move? Because I think Paul instinctively understands something. To get people to stay somewhere, you have to give them a great vision. Or you have to capture them, their heart and their mind, with something beautiful. There's something in beauty, isn't there? Whether it's a, a great book, 
a, a wonderful film or video, a piece of music or art, and it can transfix you. It can capture your vision, your heart and your mind, and you can just stay there and dwell in it. And what Paul does in this passage, which is quite poetic in the original, it is quite artistically put together, it is beautifully written. But what he does in this passage is tries to capture them with beauty. And in particular, the beauty of the Lord Jesus. His glory, his splendor, his majesty. He says, Colossians, let me just tell you, let me just show you, let me just peel back the curtain, so to speak, and show you Jesus. Because if I can show you who he is, if I can grab you with his beauty, with his glory, with his majesty, that'll keep you fixed. That'll keep you firm in the gospel. And so that's what we do. And I guess there's lots we could draw out of this passage. I'm just going to look at two things. So I think verse 15 sort of is almost a summary. And the rest of the passage in many ways unpacks what verse 15 says. There are two big things I think Paul is saying about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. And he's the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn uh, over all creation. And when he says he's the image of the invisible God, he means Jesus can show you God. He can show you what God's like because he is God. You want to know what God is, who God is, what he's like? Look at Jesus. Uh, And secondly, firstborn over all creation. That's one of those classic verses if you've ever been stopped by um, Jehovah's Witnesses. They might point to this verse and say, oh, see, Jesus was born. He was a created being. That's exactly the wrong point. Paul Paul is trying to say exactly the opposite. Firstborn is the word that means heir, ruler of. Jesus is the ruler, the the heir of creation. It belongs to him precisely because he is God. Not a a created being. Think about it, if he was a created being, how could he show us God? How could he be the image of God? It wouldn't make any sense. But, But Jesus is the one who can show us what God's like. And he is the Lord of everything. The ruler, the heir, the firstborn, the one to whom the whole of creation belongs. After having said that in verse 15, he he sort of unpacks them. And and, uh, the first one is this, the verses 16 to sort of 18. Don't move from Jesus because he is the Lord of everything. He is the ruler of everything. Now you say, why does Jesus have the right to be the ruler of of everything? Uh, Well, surely we we vote people in in our society, don't we? We're a democracy and we do that sort of thing. I'm not necessarily, I'm not sure I like Jesus. Why why should Jesus get to be in charge of everything? And Paul's point's really simple. Verse 16, why is Jesus the firstborn over all creation? Why is the ruler of everything? For in him all things were created. He rules the universe because he made the universe. It's his property. He made it and he owns it and it belongs to him. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the one who made 
everything. And that list is, is not necessarily exhaustive. It, it's just he's saying he, he made the things you can see and the things you can't. He made the things uh, that are on earth and the things that aren't on earth. He made everything. All the powers that exist in the world, everything that you think is impressive or important, Jesus made it. Don't move from Jesus because he is the one who rules everything, made everything, owns everything, is Lord of everything. And you might have uh, seen that that little word all crops up quite a lot in this passage. Because Paul's making that point. Jesus is Lord of all. Uh, So Jesus is Lord of things visible, the things we see. There's a nice picture of a beautiful place I've been on holiday too many times. And, And sometimes when you go on holiday to some beautiful part of the world... Uh, there's that moment, isn't there, where you just go, oh, wow, Jesus made it. He made it up. He spoke it into existence. You think how beautiful or majestic or amazing that view is. How much more beautiful, majestic and amazing is the one who spoke it into existence? If you're looking for for fulfillment in in holidaying and seeing great visions, why wouldn't you want to find fulfillment more in the one who put those visions there? Put those bits of beauty into the world. He made all the things we see. And actually, he made all the things we don't see and often take for granted, like the air we breathe. It's just around us all the time, isn't it? But it's, it's an extraordinary thing, you know. In order for the air we breathe to be suitable for human beings to breathe it, did you know, it needs to be somewhere between 19.5% and 23.5% oxygen, roughly in that range. And the air we breathe is about 20 to 21% oxygen, perfectly right for us to breathe. And Jesus made it just that way. Next time you take in a big... Lungful, maybe you've done a park run or something like that, and you just need a big breath, and you just remember that breath is a perfectly mixed, beautifully balanced gift from Jesus. He made it. And it's not just the things of this this realm, this earthly realm, those thrones and rulers and powers and authorities. Most people believe Paul there is is talking about spiritual forces as well, Uh, angels and and uh, beings like that, spiritual beings. Uh, And Jesus made them. He's not just one of them. He's on a higher plane. And everything was made for him at the end of verse 16. Did you see that? Why does today exist? For Jesus. Why does tomorrow exist? For Jesus. So how are you going to use today? How are you going to use tomorrow if that's true? Wouldn't it shape the way you did everything? Maybe you've not actually captured quite how big and impressive and awesome Jesus is, the Lord of creation. But he's not just the uh, Lord of uh, creation, he's also the Lord of new creation. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
So Jesus isn't yesterday's man, the creator of the dim and distant past who has no call on the future. No, Jesus is also Lord of the future. He was raised from the dead and promises that all those who trust in him will also be raised to be with him in his church, his congregation, his people gathered around him, that also the the Bible here calls his body. And that's what the future is all about. Being part of that group. Jesus, who is Lord of creation, is Lord of new creation as well. He's Lord of the the present and the past, and he's Lord of the future. And everything that exists, or ever will exist, exists for him. And only continues to exist because of him. That is Jesus. So why would you look anywhere else? Because anything else you look to for your purpose, for your meaning, for your satisfaction, only exists because Jesus sustains it. It was made by him. It is less than he is by definition. So why would you look somewhere else when Paul's saying you have the creator and Lord of all? Why would you be taken in by some other thing? Don't move from Jesus. He is Lord of everything. But secondly, don't move from Jesus because he can show you God, I've said here. I, I, was, I was weighing up in my mind for some time, show you God or bring you to God. It's both ends. It's both ends. Uh, first of all, as the image of God, or as verse 19 puts it, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is God in the flesh. See, the thing about God is, we're not God, and uh, there's this huge gap between us and God that, because he is infinite and we are finite. And so when we're trying to work out the mind of God or what God's like, that's quite a hard thing to do with our tiny, finite brains to try and get our heads around the infinite God. It doesn't matter how clever you are. If your brain is finite, and all of our brains are finite, trying to grasp the infinite is, is a bit much, really, isn't it? It's quite hard to do. So you're like, how can I know what God's like, or, or what he's going to do, or how he thinks about things, or anything like that? Well, God has to show us, doesn't he? And where he does that most fully and perfectly of all, of course, is that he came to live as one of us. Jesus came to dwell amongst us, and as he did, we saw what God was like. We saw how God reacted to someone in grief or pain. Uh, We saw how Jesus could have fun, God could have fun with his friends. Uh, We saw how uh, God could uh, deal with those who oppose him. We saw all sorts of things about God, because Jesus shows us, because all God's fullness dwells in Jesus. We know what God is like because we've seen Jesus. We know even more clearly what God is like because we've seen Jesus. And when we talk about God, we are talking about the source of all goodness and love and truth and light and all the good things that our hearts go after and long for. He's the source of them all. And so that deep down, it's him we're longing for. And Jesus is there saying, yeah, that's me. I'm the one. I'm the longing behind all your longings. I'm the, I'm the one who can satisfy your hearts. And I am the only one who can do it because I'm the one who shows you what God's like. I'm the one who is God. 
Now, often our longings are misdirected and misplaced, and, and that's part of what sin is. It twists our thinking and our hearts so that we run after the wrong things. But Jesus is there saying, no, no, no. See me in all my glory. The one in whom all God's fullness dwells. This is the one you need to repent, come back to. Turn back to me. Don't move from Jesus. He can show you God. And he can show you God also because he can get you into God's kingdom. Not only as we watch Jesus as he goes about his earthly life do we see what God's like, but, but what he came to do was one day that we would enjoy life in his kingdom forever. So verse 20, through him, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, the ways in which we misdirect our longings and we look for things that aren't God to satisfy and fulfill us, uh, the Bible calls all that sin. Uh, And not only do we do that, we're we're sort of pretty ignorant and pretty appalling toward God who gives us all these good things and we turn our back on him and we treat him as if he deserved nothing from us. And that sin has to be paid for. You know, I, I think I've used this story before, maybe, um, about, you know, if I walk into the Arndale Centre and I meet one of those market research people who ask me for a moment of my time, I, I kind of, if I'm busy, I can sort of say, sorry, yeah, I don't really owe you anything, so uh, no, you're not having any of my time. Uh, and I, that's kind of okay. But if I go home uh, one evening and uh, my wife said to me, uh, Tim, I've had a really rough day. Can, can we just sit and talk about it? And I go, no, sorry, don't owe you anything. Uh, I'm not interested. Well, because of the fact of who she is, actually, relationally, that's going to create a problem in a way that it's not going to with the market research person. But given that God is our maker, the one who owns us and loves us and cares for us and gives us every good thing we enjoy, then then actually there are huge relational consequences to our sin. And those consequences need dealing with. And that's why Jesus came. Because by ourselves we were shut out from God's presence. Shut out from his goodness and his love and his truth and all those good things that actually our hearts most long for. We lost them. But through the cross, Jesus paid for those sins. He took the consequences. And through his blood, he made peace between us and God. So that we can be with God. The only real thing that can satisfy our hearts, the only real one who can satisfy our hearts. It is incredible. It it is amazing that Jesus would do that for us, even more amazing when you consider our attitude toward God. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, that's the Bible's verdict on what sin is. When we go looking for other things rather than God to fulfill us, it, it is It is us declaring war on God, saying, no, we don't believe you, we don't trust you, we don't think you are the one who can satisfy our souls. Uh, We think we can do it better ourselves, thanks. And we think we can live as though you're not even in charge of this world anymore. We can do it our, our, our way better. And when you consider that's how we treated him, 
that Jesus would come and die for us in order that we can be brought back in. He would die for us. Even though we had rejected him and treated him like garbage. And remember who this is. This is the Lord of everything. You know, Jesus didn't have to do anything for us. The one who made and sustains all things could quite easily have decided to declare war on us if, after we declared war on him, right? And that is not a fight we could have won. And yet in love, instead of doing that, he shows mercy. And pays the price for our sin and reconciles us to God. He could have beaten us, but he wanted to win us. He could have beaten us, but he wanted to win us. He could have beaten us like an enemy in a war. But he wanted to win us to be part of his kingdom. And look at verse 22. Uh, look at what it is to be part of that kingdom. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Beautiful, radiant, glorious, without blemish and free from accusation. That's what the washing away of sins and the making peace with God does. Because Jesus' goal for us is to make us Glorious. Radiant, beautiful. I don't know about you, I often feel far less than that. I often feel condemned. I often feel a deep sense of shame over the way I treat others. That's all part of the sinful world that we live in. And we're all part of it. We, we all sin ourselves, so we're all part of the mess and the problem. Sorry if that is offensive to you, but that's what the Bible claims. And actually, I think it's fairly self-evident for anybody who is reflective. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. That God himself would come and rescue us through his own death so that we could be with him, see him, get every longing our hearts desire forever. Don't move from Jesus. He is the Lord of everything. He's so much bigger and better than anything else you might live for. Don't move from Jesus. He can show you God. He can bring you to the God you were made for. And so... Continue in your faith, as verse 23 says, established and firm. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul wants them to gaze at Jesus, to be captivated by him, so they will not move. And this passage is so full of his glory that if we will dwell on it and meditate in it and pray that God would do that work in us, that it can captivate us. And that's the secret. Let me show you 
Uh, a couple more pictures. It's very blurry because it's a subway CCTV uh, camera from New York. And you might just be able to make out if you're near the front or have good eyesight. There's somebody there sort of in that kind of position playing a violin, fiddling away with a, a violin case. Just dressed very ordinary. Um, and on January the 12th in 2007, for 45 minutes, this man played in a subway station. He played a series of eight classical masterpieces. Um, and uh, in that time, uh, over a 1,000 people walked past. Most of them didn't stop. Uh, in that time, $27 were put into his violin case. Uh, but for the most part, he was ignored. If you'd seen that man the previous night, you might have seen him uh, look a bit more like that. Because uh, the night before, he'd sold out a concert hall uh, where the tickets were $100 apiece. His name's Joshua Bell. He's one of the most famous violinists in the world. In fact, in the subway, he was playing a violin that cost $3.5 million. But because people couldn't see it, they didn't stop. Paul has given us this passage so that we will see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, so that we will dwell there and fix our gaze on him, so that we will not move from the hope of the gospel, so that we won't be looking somewhere else. It's a really simple one-point sermon, really, isn't it? It's don't move from Jesus. But, but it's more than that, or it should be. And if it isn't, it's because of my failures. It's Paul saying, look at Jesus. Why would you go anywhere else? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. And thank you for Paul's writing here. Having told them that they're qualified having told them that the way to more is by doing more of the same, that there is more in Christ than they could ever imagine, but that they mustn't move. Thank you that Paul gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of Jesus' glory in these passages. The image of the invisible God who can show us what you're like. The ruler of everything who made it all. How glorious, how wonderful, how majestic he must be. And so, Father, we pray that he would fill our minds, fill our hearts, fill our vision this week. That we would not move from the hope of the gospel. And we pray it in his name. Amen.